Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different, and we've been voted the number one dialogue podcast because here we have real, different conversations about business, marketing, and life. On today's episode, a very special guest, a dear friend, uh, and one of the CEOs that I respect the most, Doug Merritt, on a critical topic, radical business transformation. I believe we're living in a cocoon time. That is to say there was uh, life before February and there'll be life after we go through this transition. And the one thing we know for sure is that the future will be very different and many of our businesses need to become radically transformed. And on a personal level, candidly, I think all of us are going to be changed by what we're seeing going on in the world today. And so I wanted to ask Doug to come in and have a conversation with me about Splunk's journey. Over the last several years, they've gone through a massive transformation around technology, uh, delivery model, move to the cloud, and a business model transformation from selling software on a perpetual basis to selling it on a subscription basis. They've done massive acquisitions, including a recent one that was a billion dollars, a company called Signal FX. And they've done all this while being a public company, growing at insanely rapid rates. And today they stand at about a $30 billion market cap company. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that I have a business relationship with Doug and with Splunk. We've been friends for a long time. So I want you to know I'm highly biased, but for a reason. You see, I think Doug's a legend. I think his track record speaks for itself. And beyond Doug, I've gotten to know many of the leaders of Splunk. And um, candidly, I hold the Splunk leadership team in the highest regard. On top of that, I've been bugging Doug to start his own podcast. Uh, I think he's wickedly smart, makes courageous decisions, and is radically transparent. Uh, well, he's very busy, as you could po- as you could imagine, running a $30 billion publicly traded company. I'll do that for you. And so uh, what we decided to do was take the kinds of conversations that he and I have in public and try to, or in private rather, and try to capture it here in a podcast to share it with you. Well, not only did we get that, but I think a lot more. In addition to the massive transformation uh, that you're about to hear, also pay attention to the depth and breadth of detail that Doug goes into about their business, their technology model and stack, their business model, and so forth, their financial model. Because I think you're going to see that to be a CEO of a company like this requires a level of depth and breadth that uh, most people will find surprising. Also, if you are in the tech world, you're about to hear the kinds of things um, that you never hear a public company dig in, a public company CEO dig into. And I think you'll find that fascinating. And even if you're not in the tech space, you're about to hear what it really takes to be the CEO of a high growth, high impact public company. Now, here he is, Doug Merritt. Hey ho, let's go. So, Doug, uh, let's talk a little bit about transformation. Clearly, you help your customers do that. And uh, Splunk is going through a radical transformation. And I would argue, you'll tell me, that we as a society, we as a a business uh, culture, as an economy, everything's going through transformation right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, A lot of uncertainty and change in the environment right now. 
But yeah, I mean, we we uh, targeted over four years ago. We targeted four simultaneous transformations. First was shifting our business model. The second was completely rethinking and delivering a different product portfolio. Third was overall go to market shift. And then the fourth, which is really a factor of the other three, is a complete rethinking and re-implementation of our business processes and then all the infrastructure, technology, and otherwise to support those those new business processes. It's been a lot of work. And we're not done. We're not done yet, but but uh, we continue to make good progress. And remind me how long ago you started the transformation? Uh, it was actually all outlined in my board pitch to get the CEO job in uh, July and August of 2015. So five years ago now, almost to the day. And there are many companies, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's outrageous to say potentially all companies are going to go through some kind of transformation. Maybe just where they are on the radical scale <laughs> might be a little <laughs> yeah. bit different, whether it's because yeah. of the technology and mega trends or shifts in the economy. And of course, I believe uh, we're in, and if this is too corny, kick me under the table, but primarily because of C-19 now, we're in a cocoon period where the world was one way in February, January, February, and it's going to be some new way and we're in this transition. And so I, I got to believe if you're the CEO of any company of any kind of consequence, you're dealing with transformation at the kinds of levels that you've been dealing with for the last five years. And so I guess with all that said, Doug, what are your big ahas having, having lived through this for, for five years and, and come out the other side with an incredible outcome? I, I love your, your cocoon phase, because I'd agree. <clears throat> and we, we don't know what the real future looks like. Um, and we're all running on adrenaline and um, immediate focus to try and get through the early innings of what is has to be a multi-quarter, multi-year set of shifts. The way that I think about and, and every company for sure is going through transformations. We've Every company in the US that was in a state that went to a more radical shelter in place, and there are a lot of states that did that, had to move everyone in that state to remote work. And that is a very difficult, but in this case, very fast set of transformations that, that they have to go through. And obviously, everyone's got to be on a digital transformation if they want to be successful. For me, like so many other business decisions, the magnitude of what you're doing is um, a factor of the risk involved in, in doing that transformation. And risk really, for me, is reversibility. How easy is it to reverse the risk? Jeff Bezos talks about it, and I think a very catchy way, which is, is your decision and your your change a one-way door or a two-way door? <laughs> Obviously, a one-way yeah. door, you may be able to get back in, but it's going to get an axe and maybe a wrecking ball, and it's going to be a lot of pain and effort to get back in. Two-way door, like a you know, revolving door in a hotel, you go out, and maybe you don't like it, you can choose to go back in. It's, it's more easy to reverse. Moving people to remote work is it's kind of a two-way door. There's uh, there's investments you've got to make and uh, new policies you have to put in place. But if you decide six months from now, you know what? We've experimented and COVID's passed us and remote work doesn't work. I want everyone back to the office you, until you get rid of your real estate, which is not something you do quickly. And you still have those facilities. You can reverse that decision. A business model change, that's a one-way door. A pricing change, that's a one-way door. A entire restriping of your portfolio, in our case, to be cloud-native, that's a one-way door. You can't, you cannot reverse that code. Once you go down that path, you are burning the bridges and 
and hoping that your destination is the right destination. Um, so there so are there are these like, super dramatic ones. Let's take a look at the, some of these super dramatic ones, these one, big one-way doors, and the two that jump immediately out to me. And of course, I have the advantage of having an inside seat, but business model, uh, a complete 180 of the business model. And then on the technology, and you and I have talked about this many times, it is the very rare technology company that essentially rebuilds its stack and continues its up and to the right revenue and, and, and sales growth. And so maybe share with me technology, massive technology, and radical business model change. And that ultimately, you hit on the thing that I'm, I'm most proud of, uh, of the team at Splunk and what we've done is when you've got great companies like Microsoft, Adobe, Autodesk, that went through a similar transformations. We had to change, to change business models from pay me up front, own the software, run it yourself, to pay me over time, business model shift, run it from a public cloud, massive technology shift. They tended to take five to 10 years. And during that time period, they were either down on revenues and overall traction or flat. Um, and it was a, it's, it's a long period. It's very difficult to do. Um, what I'm really proud of is Splunk is we've done the same thing. But we've had we've been able to continue to grow, uh, grow revenues, grow customer count. The p- product portfolio shift was dramatic and difficult to move an on-premise vertical scale-out technology built you know perfectly for a 2005 to 2010 landscape into a cloud-based horizontal scale-out technology necessary in today's cloud. That was a lot of work for the core product. But in addition to that, we've probably 10x the actual portfolio breadth and depth. Um, and as we're doing the new build, the acquisitions, new builds, um, of course, we've got to make all that cloud ready and cloud friendly as well. Uh, so to be able to to take on that degree of, of change, of disruption, of difficulty, and somehow still over deliver versus expectations, I think that we are in a category of one right now, but, but I'm hoping that there are more that come behind us. I remember back in the Mercury days, we were early in making this transition as a software company that sold on a perpetual model to a, at the time people were calling it Radable, which is, it's less described as that, but it's what we today call a service model or a subscription model, right? Yeah. And it was radically hard because you have so much complexity. A, there's the customer side of it. B, because customers used to buy one way, now they're gonna you're gonna encourage them. And some of them want to and some of them don't, and somewhere in between. But no matter what, there's conversations and discussions and new contracts and deals to get. So there's lots of work on the customer side. And of course, you're driving revenue, retraining the sales force, go to market, partners, all of that, go to market, totally non-trivial. And then the other thing as a public company, when you say to the street, hey, um, we used to sell this thing and it flowed through the income statement and ta-da, and now we're going to take this thing and divide it by 24 and roll it in slowly over time. And guess what? Our revenue is going to crater in the short term. And when revenue craters, a whole bunch of other shit craters. And so how do you do this as a public company when the transition just on dealing with the internal stuff and the customers is massive, but now you're naked to the world <laughs> as a public company. And your description, such a great description, because I think it really highlights how, why is this one-way door oriented? 
you've got to change your development team and how they think and work, your product roadmap, your sales force, your partner relationships, your contracts and legal T's and C's, your customer engagement. So it is, that's why it's so darn hard to reverse. Again, you can, you can bring a wrecking ball in. It just takes time to, to rethink that. So you, you hopefully get it right. We, we had one unique tailwind that I'm very thankful for because we really had a two-stage transition. Um, the, the majority of our contract shift that occurred the first three years was from on-prem perpetual to on-prem term, which is really what you guys were doing in Mercury. Yep. Um, yeah, you, you can, you still run the software. It's still, you know, you control it, but because testing in your case is something that kind of ebbs and flows and you may not need it all the time. Why don't you rent it from us? And then we get the benefit of recurring revenue. Um, so we do the same. It's instead of, you know, buying all this flunk because data spikes and then you know, has lots of different characteristics. Why don't you rent it from us? And, and that went really well. Customers. And again, we, we were a little bit ahead of, of you guys back in Mercury. You guys were really blazing some new trails back then. Um, people are used to more of a rental model because of the public cloud and um, all the SaaS applications that we consume. Still a big change for customers. I've got a capital budget that's moving to an operating budget. And my CFO is really unhappy because uh, I haven't fully depreciated this thing. And now you want me to do this and why and what's the value to me. And so a, you know, a lot of that one-way door type of activity. Um, within that term, a, an accounting change happened uh, very early in that transition, which forced us to recognize the revenue up front, um, which was actually very painful. We were geared up to tell the street, hey, get ready for this transition. Revenue is going to change. And then all of a sudden, well, if you get signed three to four-year term deals, it's kind of the same as a perpetual deal, which helped us with that revenue growth. Was that because of the length of the contracts? Yeah. So one-year term deal would be very negative revenue-wise versus what you would have sold perpetual. Two years was you know, a third or, or, or probably a little bit less. Three years is more or less equivalent. It depends with some of the characteristics of the contract. So for the bigger deals, they wind up coming in usually three-year term. The customers want visibility on what their payment structures are going to be. And the more meaningful interruption is uh, the ratability you talked about. When you actually deliver software as a service, they don't own it. They don't touch it. They, they, when you don't have possession, then you have to charge on a day-by-day basis. That's the only, well, you have to recognize revenue, sorry, on a day-by-day basis. And that is, uh, as, as any of you guys guess, that's very revenue impactful. So the street loves that when you're taking the revenue down and you're trying to tell them it's a good thing, right? <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and we, we had lots of forewarning on both. We gave lots of forewarning on both. I, I think from the very beginning, uh, the whole interview panel uh, is an internal succession, which I think helps in these. Um, I was already uh, executive at Splunk. I understood the landscape. Um, the the CEO that I succeeded, Godfrey Sullivan, uh, was this was he wanted this to happen. So a lot of good tailwinds there. Um, but from the from my early interviews with the board, it was a this is a agenda of change. And you know, at that point in time, we had just finished a, a high four hundred million dollar revenue year, growing in excess of fifty percent. Um, I'm really proud of the board to say. Uh, on the path to a billion, when everything is going beautifully, like we're crushing it, we're going to start to blow stuff up. And if we blow it up, it may not work. So we could take you know this hot story and and take it apart and not be able to put it back together. And they they, they understood where we're going. They were super supportive. Um, and we uh, within a year of my CEO ship, we went to the street with the story at the beginning of the next fiscal year. This is what we're going to do. 
for 70% perpetual, they'll see us go uh, as uh, our take at that time was to uh, 60 to 70% term over three years. We crushed that and, and actually retired perpetual completely uh, two and three quarter a year into that cycle because term was doing so well. But just as importantly, um, we started and then really aggressively grew a cloud business within that fold. And that went, uh, that, that actually was five and a half years ago. Godfrey started that and I inherited it. But, but we w- went from zero cloud revenue to, uh, end of Q4, uh, of last year, just, just three months ago, three months ago and change. Um, we were, uh, over 40% of that quarter's bookings being cloud. Um, and we just topped it again this quarter with 44% of bookings being cloud based. So that's the real transformation from a financials perspective. Because you can see the revenue impact on the financials, um, but the technology transformation, the business model transformation, the pricing model that went with it, that transformation, uh, all had been in the works and being uh, feathered into the ecosystem for three plus years before. So in, if you really think about it broadly, then it, uh, this transformation starts roughly eight years ago? Five. Five and change. Yeah. Because that, that was when we really committed to, we're going to have to be in the cloud. So at that point, the company, if I am uh, got this right, in the high 400s, growing at about 50%. And um, are you allowed to talk about guidance? or What, 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 should we, <laughs> what, what do you want to say about the company's revenue now? Let me ask you to do that. Yes. So uh, we wound up, despite um, the really successful growth of cloud last year, um, we're in our fiscal year 21 now. We're in, uh, in May of 2020. We had a really good year last year. Revenue was decelerating. It was Q4 is the lowest revenue year that we've had on record as far as growth. It was a 20%, 27% growth quarter. Um, but on, on really big numbers at that point in time, we ended the year uh, just shy of $2.4 billion in, in recognizable revenue. But we had moved to an annual recurring revenue metric uh, three quarters before that. Um, we had started publishing our cloud numbers uh, four quarters before that, just so we could start to get the, the investor community comfortable with this is where we're going. Term revenue for now is total contract value. We're focusing more and more on annual contract value and on the annual recurring revenue that we actually have under wraps as an organization. And as we transition from less than 25% cloud to ideally more than 85% cloud, ARR and revenue turns out to be the gap revenue uh, and ARR turn out to be the same thing. And the transition period, gap revenue is going to be all over the place because you have the total contract value of term versus the annual recurring revenue of cloud. And included in that, of course, is the annual recurring revenue of term. And for that metric, uh, we go against the, the I think gap. I need a whiskey if you're going to keep t- telling me about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was way too what, detailed. That was what, way too detailed. But, um, what people but, need but, to understand is five years ago, you know, a company on a, on a path to half a billion. And today, a company rough and tough two and a half billion and a market cap today of roughly 28 to 30 billion. Yes. And back then we were rough five to six and a half billion, um, depending on, on the, on the day. Um, but, but I think what, what has helped support that. So if we go to the roughly 2.4 billion in revenue at the end of, of last fiscal year, um, we, delivered a little bit over 1.5 billion in annual recurring revenue with our metric and showed a path to the street uh, to our investors 
that we would, we felt confident that we'd be able to maintain a 40% compound annual growth rate of annual recurring revenue. So they could see how it would go from a little bit over 1.5 billion to you know, mid four, 4.4 billion, 5 billion, depending on how you layer in that compound annual growth rate. You know, when does it get to 40, uh, given that we were above 50% uh, in, in Q4? And I think that comfort of, that was the first time in Q4 where they, I think they could see based on the three-year guide, wow, if you really, really can keep a mid 40s uh, compound annual growth rate next year and 40% over three years, you're going to be one of the biggest cloud companies out there um, you know, among the elite. Uh, and then this quarter that we just delivered in Q1, despite all the chaos of COVID, um, we had really nice 52% year-over-year ARR growth that brought it to 1.775 billion, so almost 1.8 billion of ARR. We had really healthy cloud ARR growth, 82% year-over-year ARR cloud growth, uh, 480 million of cloud ARR, and really healthy cloud revenue. And those are going to be different, ARR versus revenue, <laughs> of 112 million with an 81% growth characteristic. So, and we overall bookings were 44%, as I said earlier, for cloud. So I, th- I think we established uh, reinforcement that we feel confident minus draconian global factors that we can't perfectly predict that we will remain a very high growth rate ARR company. Cloud will continue to grow much faster than overall ARR and that we are on a path that we feel increasingly confident about um, where in three years we'll be 60 plus percent cloud-based revenue. Um, and that, that that is, I think, a compelling story. But that, that is the story that helps complete, okay, you said you're doing this stuff for four years. We've got four years to judge you by, wow, you're doing a pretty good job of, of doing what you said you're going to do. And so it's an incredible thing to think about. You're going to essentially redo your business model and redesign your technology. You're doing acquisitions and you're driving this kind of growth rate. And the the other sort of interesting thing to me as a side note is I think you could build a compelling argument that Splunk helps people do quote unquote data transformation, whatever they think that freaking means. But And so you have lived through and driven as a leader, as a CEO, this massive change while producing these results. It's the equivalent of running a marathon while getting a heart transplant. And, <laughs> And and so what are the insights if I'm let's say I'm a colleague of yours as a CEO and I'm sort of at that decision that you and the board were at five years ago and particularly with C19, it's time to get radical. It's time to do it quickly. And I'm going to have to drive some major transformations. I, I may need to be in whole new businesses. I may have a business that's shutting down. I mean, absolutely radical transformation. What are the key insights? Uh, I think a couple of things that really have helped us. Uh, one, from the very beginning before we did one move, before I changed one staff member, changed one bit of code, getting agreement and clarity on the high-level uh, strategic roadmap, the clarity on what transformations are you going to drive, what pacing do you think you can get those done by. Uh, I think just from a board, exec management team, uh, senior leadership team is 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 mandatory. You have to know where you are going to eventually have a chance of getting to to where you want to go. But I think you are in no way performing some secret move here. Everybody's on board. The the board of directors, 
is a thousand percent clear and you've double clicked on it. And this has been a discussion over a period. So in other words, because I hear this sometimes people say, well, they're going to do this sort of covert transformation. You know, it's like, no, if the CEO and the board don't want to do this, we can't do this. You know, I hear it in the context of category design, of course, but there's no such thing as a covert transformation of any kind of consequence, is there? No. And and just going back to uh, data transformation and what does Splunk do? And I think secrets generally do not help. The world is pretty gosh darn smart and they have ways of understanding where you are and where you're going. And um, the more transparent, the more prescriptive, the more purposeful you can be, the better. And I think especially with something like this, because there are going to be wins and losses. These are not smooth, straight lines. And if you don't have agreement with the board, and I got to tell you, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, there were many sleepless nights. The first two years, it, it was it was insane how many times I woke up at 2 a.m. soaking the sheets and just because the, the stakes are, are so high. And that was with the board that I knew supported me. But, but I think the, the clarity, we are here, we're going here. Uh, but what drives that clarity? Right? I think there's two higher level factors. Uh, and we prioritize these. We went through a whole exercise my first uh, two months as CEO uh, to really drive the core corporate uh, values, the uh, high-level markers that were critical for everyone to rally around and customer and customer success was number one. Why are we doing this? Because this helps our customers. If they have continuously updated software, if they can get time to value collapse by X percent, if their total cost of ownership goes way down by this much, if feature velocity goes up, if customers can be much, much more successful. Um, and right behind that was employee top talent and investing in employees, um, which goes back to what is our purpose? We're doing this to serve customers. Why? Why do customers need this? Well, data saves lives. Data reimagines businesses. Data changes the world. Data helps us narratively driven story processors be much more effective, honest, transparent, focused story processors. And the world needs a you know increasing body of data capability so that when we're faced with something as as unpredictable and crazy as a global pandemic, we have the ability, as long as we're listen, willing to listen to the data, um, to actually find our way through that that path. So I think clarity on where we're going, full buy-in from the board all the way down, a clear reason for what is who's going to benefit, and clear purpose for the employees on why it's worth going through this journey. And then as you'll read in every textbook, and, and you do a great job of, of communicating through your own writing, Chris, you've got to communicate, 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 like never, ever, ever stop. Every all hands, every marketing message, I just be you know, nonstop focused on making sure you reinforce those points. <laughs> I've seen you do it, of course. So I and, and with all that, you probably still have an 80% chance of failing. <laughs> it's, it's not for the faint of heart. I guess the executive team piece is you've got to be super courageous. You've got to be open to change. You've got to be open to feedback. And you've got to be comfortable with the fact that I could very, especially as a public company exec team and CEO, I could face plant in a super public way. And you know what? That's what I get paid to do. And I'll find a way to pick myself up and the team back up and the employees back up and the customers back up. And as long as they let me, I'll keep driving forward. But that's, uh, it, it, sadly, it's not as prevalent in many management teams and leadership as it should be. People, there's a lot of incentives to preserve what's there um, rather than to risk what you have for, for a, a transformation or a higher purpose. I love that. And 
I, I love that you naturally went to the courage piece because that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. Those 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 uh, sweaty nights and sleepless nights, particularly in, in a very precision way, maybe you could help me here. Courage in the face of no evidence of success yet or little evidence of success yet, or even worse, courage in the face of the strategy and plan to execute the strategy not going well. Customers resisting, Wall Street going, F, you know, and the stock being undervalued or going down. Uh, you know, you went through those types of things and many others upset with in, you know, engineering and upset in the field and people leaving because they didn't believe in the new strategy. And there, and there, there were times when it didn't look as good as it looks right now. <laughs> And even when when things look like they're going really well, there's still a hundred things you got to focus on and lots of bumps in the road. Do you just always areas. feel like your hair's on fire? <laughs> yeah. Yes, although less now than four years ago and three years ago. That because the as you say, you described it so well. You're in the in between stage. Like you set the vision, you started to move, but there's not enough proof points yet. And to get there, you're changing out key leaders. You're changing out. Uh, critical processes. You're asking people to take risks on new technology. Um, you're rolling out products that may or may not work. Um, you are getting close on some quarters versus your internal metrics. There's so many different moving parts. And you know we all live with the specter uh, when you're not founders that have a controlling interest and you know, all the wonderful multi-class share system that, that some people inherit or craft for themselves. Um, you know, anyone, an activist, a board member, anyone can walk at any point in time and dismiss you. And and that's the, uh, the trying to create enough belief and momentum and, and proof points along the way that this journey is worth it. And even though we just had an ex- unexpected bump and we're all scrambling, now we're still on path to get to where we want to get to. You and I have chatted in the past about a mind shift or mindset shift that you made because it's easy to say in your shoes, well, Jeff Bezos is the founder. He's got, he owns a massive percentage of the stock and they're not going to fire him anyway. So, you know, he, he, he can do these wild, courageous things, some of which fail, some of which succeed, but he quote unquote gets away with it because he's a founder and, and you're not. And, and so founder CEOs are in a situation you're not. And that could, could be a good excuse for you to be uh, more conservative. And yet somehow, you have found it past this paradigm. But I, I would love it if you could sort of open that up a little. That, that definitely, the first year, um, I started on some items that I'd outlined, but I was really nervous. I was aware of the bigger one-way doors, and I was nervous to fully go running through the one-way doors. And my excuse in those 2 a.m. moments uh, was, I'm, I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not uh, Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not Sergey where there's no way I can be removed. Um, and, and it may not work, but I'm, I'm going to be insulated. And then I, I kept falling back to on the, I, I had a coach, I had a therapist, like I tried <laughs> to arm myself with people that could help me, help me be honest with myself and hold myself accountable and be clear on why I was doing this, that that's what I get paid for. This is my job. This is why the board actually nominated me to be a CEO. Um, and they they had lots of choice. It was a you know, was a really compelling company. It still is a compelling company, and 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 you get paid to take those risks. And in almost everything that's worth doing, the the 
uh, average person doesn't see it yet. That that's why it's so great is because you're doing something that nobody else is believes yet or sees yet. Or um, so it was. Yeah, that, that that's what propelled me forward. Is that this this literally is my job? And even if I look like a fool, I'm letting down at that point probably fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred employees. I'm letting down you know, probably six, seven thousand customers. I'm letting down the uh, thousands and thousands of investors we have. This is what I have to do. But again, you know, no. Uh, no document on the fact that I lost a lot of hair. I was I, w- I was under a lot of stress for two solid years, um, and and that also makes this super rewarding as you start to get some momentum and traction, knowing full well we're not through it. Right, there's still a lot more we have to do to uh, claim real success on everything we set out to do four years ago. Amazing. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, Doug? Um, the other piece we can touch on because we have other opportunities is how do you begin to influence the entire employee population? Um, Because in addition to my mindset, making sure that we made it clear to the employee base how much opportunity there was is not just a fact-based, roadmap-based piece. There's got to be a whole emotional, cultural hook as well. Um, And uh, as Fortunate enough early in my tenure to have uh, Satya, the CEO of Microsoft, give me an hour of his time. And he was really famous in his first couple of years of gravitating the entire company toward the growth mindset uh, that Carol Dwork out of uh, Stanford is, is one of the, the author of and the key evangelist around. And um, that was another key set of items that we really drove is the multiple different avenues of trying to reinforce where we're going with mindset, cultural change. What are we what are we hiring for? What are we reinforcing? Why are we promoting? We went through a whole set of uh, exercises on key competencies and attributes of current employees and future employees. And but there was a, a lot of really interesting um, HR partnering, as yeah. well as finance partnering and IT partnering and engineering and sales um, to, to make this work. Because ultimately, it's it's the team, it's the people that drive this, and you've got to find a way to get the team to, to go along with you. Fantastic. Doug Merritt, you're awesome. You know what I think of you. I think you're a legend, <laughs> and I am deeply proud to be uh, connected to you. Well, thank you, Chris. You know, I feel the same. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. Thank you, brother. All right. We would like to thank Doug Merritt. Thank you so much, Doug. And uh, go check out splunk.com, splunk.com. The good folks at onelifefullylive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. My friends at Bottleneck Online are the first dedicated distant assistant company. They've been social distancing before that was a thing. If you want an assistant that'll help you scale you, check out bottleneck.online. My friends at interviewvalet.com uh, will help you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. Visit interviewvalet.com today. The good folks at DeVry University have been making a, de- uh, making a difference for decades. Check out devry.edu. My friends at Atranet have been building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And at this time, this extraordinary time of transition, if you can make a difference, now's the time to dig into your wallet and try to make that difference or make a difference with your actions, your words, 
uh, and your contributions. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We are produced and edited by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Lockhead.com and Technical Awesomeness by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Don't forget to listen to the Ramones. Tom Waits was right. Only buy pasture raised, free range eggs. Uh, I love you, mom and dad. And uh, hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, founder of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.